We're going to kick it off tonight with just a two-week series, just two weeks in pretty in two pretty obscure books. We're going to do a book a week, okay? Okay, so I'll get you out by midnight. We'll be fine. Um, don't want to keep you up late, but we're going to do a two-week series, week one in Second John and week two in Third John, and some of you have likely never even read it, or that's the one you like to read because you can read it in about four minutes. You're like, see, I read a book today. I'm done. Okay, and so if you want to turn to Second John, it's, I think, fourth from the last. It goes first, second, third, John, Jude, and Revelation. So go Revelation, Jude, third, second, John. Some of you are going to be so giddy. You did not know a book that short existed in the Bible. You're like, I could read a book every day if it was like that. And I'm a terrible reader, and so... I empathize with you. <clears throat> and I know James prayed. I'm going to pray. Um, I need help. You need help. So we're going to ask for help, and then we're going to jump in. So Jesus, just ask that um, that you would calm our hearts now, that you would settle our minds. I know the last couple of days I've been frantically working on, on a new project, and so it was even tough for me to kind of calm myself as I drove over here, turn the music off, shut the cell phone off and, and, and tried to really kind of quiet my heart a bit. Um, and I confess I'm not fully there, but I know you can do the rest. Um, and I just pray that all of us, as we kind of either coming off a crazy weekend or headed into a crazy week, that we would just calm ourselves now, that we would settle ourselves, that our hearts would be scored, that they'd be open, that they'd be receptive. Um, not just our ears, but our heart. We can hear things, but to have things implanted in our heart is something entirely different. And so, Holy Spirit, you can do that. I can't. I can, I can be called to teach, and I can proclaim God's word, but um, you can embed that into the hearts of your kids, and so I just ask that you would do that tonight as we take a look at this short epistle. Um, Jesus is a man you love dearly, and so I pray that his words would transcend time, that they would be from you. Um, Anything that I bring to the table, would it be forgotten? Um, But the truth that you have for us, would it be um, transformative tonight? Would you set our feet uh, on a new path? So... We love you. Praise you. Can't wait to see you again. Jesus, in your name. Amen. So I admit, New Year, I have a love-hate relationship with New Year's. Anyone else? Am I the only one? I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm 100% cynical and 100% optimistic in the New Year. That's only because I'm practical. It's, it's only because I'm, I'm a practical dude, and, and I go through a lot of practical things with people, and New Year's is one of those times that it just really kind of exacerbates for me. Um, some of you know I'm a fitness instructor over at Cal Lutheran. I do nutrition coaching with students, with family, with friends, with strangers, with weird people that follow me on Facebook, even though we're not really friends. Um, and and so I, I'm 100% cynical because I've just seen this routine over and over and over, and I bark a lot throughout the year about how kind of everything falls off after February, right? Like in the gym scene, you know, I'm, in, I'm, I'm also in, in marketing, and, and, and in retail, we rely on Q4, to just be a massive chunk of revenue, Q4. Like you get to Q4, you blow out Q4, your whole year is good. Gyms are the opposite. Nutrition is the opposite. You got to make your money in Q1. You got to find all the new people. You got to get the people to stick. You got to get them to join. And to be honest, the gyms don't really care if you don't come back. They don't. In fact, they're relying on the fact that maybe 20% of the people actually use the gym on a daily basis. Okay? And so I love the new year because it's this fresh perspective. It's this fresh drive. It's this fresh optimism. But it falls flat on its face really, really fast. And because I'm so practical and I walk with it, like I'm getting requests right now like crazy for nutrition from people that have been asking me every New Year's for the last 10 years for nutrition. And I'm like, 
no. I, I, told, I told a lady yesterday, no. She said, I, give me that plan. No. Why? You're not going to do it. You've already asked three times. Oh, it's because it's we moved. No, it's not. It's the new year. No, it's because I'm, totally, I'm in a better plot. No, you're not. You're not ready. So I'm like super cynical, but at the same time, I know I can help a lot of people at the beginning of the year too. Because at least they're open to it. Like in November, no one cares about me. Like I'm the nerd, like checking in on Thanksgiving at Gold's. Like I work out. Everyone's like, shut up. No one cares. It's not January, right? Like I was there at New Year's Eve and people were like yelling at me at church. So like, I saw you check in, dude. Like be with your family more, right? And so like, so like, I get, I'm super cynical, but I'm super optimistic at the same time because at least people are questioning, they're asking, they want um, new goals, they want new perspective, they want new vision, they want new purpose, they want new resolve. And so, though I'm a cynic, I'm not cynical about what it may feel like, because I get it, what it may feel like coming into the new year, even from the aspects of your faith. This is a good time for us to stop and reflect, just like, Easter is a good time for us to stop and reflect. Just like all the major holidays and Christmas is a time to stop and reflect. But if you've wanted to get rid of last year, it's gone. Don't bring it here tonight. Don't bring last year's failures. Don't bring last year's struggles. Not that they don't exist or never did. But let's at least take advantage of this time of year and reset and get a new perspective, get a new vision. And, and part of my counseling, especially on nutrition, is, 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 is basically, I, t- I tell a lot of people, I said, I've got to put a new set of glasses on you. I, I, I have to get you to see food differently. That's it. I just, it that is just a paradigm shift. And so in the same sense, in terms of your spiritual nourishment, I just want to spend two weeks really, really focusing on, on, on two things that I, that I pray will set a new set of lenses on your eyes for this year and forever. Because I think these concepts are among the greatest calls on the Christian life. These two concepts that we're going to take a look at are among the two greatest calls on the Christian life. I'm going to back it up with scripture. I'm going to show you the weight of Jesus's words himself that does not allow us to bypass these concepts or shrug them off or sacrifice them at the altar of modern society. It doesn't. And so we've opened a second John. And just the two-week series that I want to take a look at is entitled In Truth and Love. In Truth and Love. Truth and Love. Those are your glasses. For this year, perhaps quite possibly you're going to hear this theme from this pulpit, from three different teachers all year, is this idea of truth and love. That is the juxtaposition. That is the, the, the way in which Christians are called to view all things. And Second John is obviously the second book of three, first, second, third John. First John is the longest of the three by far. I taught through, it was actually the first book of the Bible I taught through years ago. My hair was down to here. In fact, I, I went back real quick just to get a couple notes from my very first sermon, and my boys walked in, and they stopped, and they saw me on the screen with long hair, and they, like, freaked out. They were like, first, they laughed. They just flat out laughed because it was pretty hilarious. So um, I was fresh out of the Marine Corps, didn't cut my hair for a year. It was just, it was funny. Um, 
amazing book, 1 John. I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I would ask you to read 1 John this week. I mean, school hasn't started, no homework yet. Stop it, okay? Read 1 John. I love 1 John. I love 1 John. So much meat, so much clarity, so much, I mean, poke. I mean, he's, he's poking at things in the church. Um, if I had to kind of break it down to maybe three bullet points, look, he, he immediately elevates Jesus, don't get me wrong. And, and there's Jesus through the whole thing. We're gonna talk a little bit about John real quick. But apart from setting up the deity of Christ and who God is and what Jesus has done, he comes out and he tells the truth. He tells the truth about churches. He tells the truth about how to know if they are of faith. He actually gives a litmus test. I mean, he gives you he gives you a biblical lens by which to say this is how you know if you know Jesus. And he tells you. Some of you are curious about that. So guess what? You should do this week. Read First John, okay? Because he'll say this is how you know you know him. And he'll give you the evidence by which. So people are, you can't tell if someone's saved, but the Bible gives us some tests to at least start to ask some questions. And so he starts calling out the churches to say, look, are you of the real faith? He also takes shots at false teachings that were going around, namely Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a belief system that crept into the early church that taught a disconnected God. It's a God that can have nothing to do with anything physical or anything material because all things physical, all things material are by nature evil. So God sits off at a distance, which to be honest, if we're honest, modern Christians, we actually probably act and think more like Gnostics than anything else. We think of a distant, far off God a lot of times, myself included. I love big, grand, far off God, sovereign, huge, doing what he wants. And I've, as I've confessed before, I struggle with the personal relationship. I struggle with Jesus as our friend. So a lot of times we set up God as this far off God. He's not an intimate, perfect, or he's not an intimate, personal God. He's this far off God. And Gnosticism says he can't have anything to do with anything physical. So what he did is he created lesser gods, emanations, one of which is by the name of Jesus, who would then pass down through to the physical realm, create things, bring messages. And there's a blockade, almost like this. He's outside the solar system and people can't get back unless they obtain a certain knowledge, which is where Gnosticism comes from. The Greek word Gnostikos, which is special knowledge. So you can't be in heaven with God unless you get special knowledge. And a lot of times Christians do the exact same thing. We simply pursue special knowledge thinking that will connect us to God and it won't. Now, there's knowledge of the things that are true, to be sure, but Gnosticism says unless you get a couple nuggets of special knowledge, you can't truly be with God. You can't be saved. And so John was writing this letter, as you'll see in 1 John, to combat this idea that Jesus himself was not God, that he didn't come in human flesh because human flesh was evil by nature. And so he's battling these false doctrines, these heresies. He also strongly urged the Christians to love one another which I struggle with. I struggle with love. I'd rather talk about truth. I would. I have truth tattooed on the inside of my arm in Hebrew. I should probably do love after this sermon series on the other one. This is, this is where I'm strong. But I fail often in love. And that's going to be a challenge for you as we go through some of these concepts. Where do you sway? No one's perfect except Jesus. You're 51% all the way to 99% one way or the other. 
you, are you bigger on truth and at the sacrifice of love? Or are you bigger on love and you sacrifice truth? I just want to love people. Therefore, you reject truth at times. Or you don't stand for it. Or do you just want to be about truth and therefore you beat people with it? That's me. This is me for certain. And you'll begin to see that all Christians struggle waiting this. We'll never get it right. We'll never be perfect. But we have to understand how the two coincide. But John, can, he almost can't, as you're going to see, he almost can't get through a sentence without talking about truth and love. He can't. And who is this guy, John? I got some notes. Not to be confused with Jap- John the baptizer. This is the apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was of the, the, the third and the fourth apostles called to Jesus' ministry after Simon and Andrew. So Jesus is walking downtown. Okay, He's begun his public ministry. He's walking by the lake, and there's a fishing business. And he calls Simon and Andrew. He calls them to follow him. As he continues, he finds James and John, brothers, mending nets, restoring these nets that were the lifeblood of that community. Hardworking guys. And it says they just up and they left their dad Zebedee. Now, it's not, that's not brutal. Like, it was an honor to follow a rabbi in those days, right? It's like Bill Gates being like, I need an intern. People are like, yeah, you know? And you'd go, or someone more relevant to Bill Gates, he's retired or something like that. Elon Musk, right? Hey, I just need someone to be an intern, right? Your parents aren't like, no, you can't leave me. They'd be like, go, leave. Don't call, okay, right? Like, so Jesus comes, he's a rabbi, he's got two homies, and then he walks by and he says, I need two more. And he begins collecting his 12. That was John of the third and the fourth called. He was young. He was super young. He might've been the youngest one of all. Young guy intern, right? Didn't know much. Just was fishing his whole life. Follow teacher. Let's go. He was there for Jesus's entire ministry. He became part of Jesus's inner circle. Now was Jesus exclusive in some capacity? No, but he did model that having a tight inner circle was healthy. Peter, James, and John saw things and did things and were a part of things that other disciples were not. They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed himself. They were, they were in different places that other disciples did not go. They were sent on missions that others did not go. He was part of Jesus's closest friends, closest friends. So close that in John 19, it says that Jesus, as he hung from the cross, looked down and he saw his mom. And what did he say to his mom? He says, mom, and he looks at John, he says, that's your son. He looks at John, he says, that's your mom. And John took her home. Gentlemen, we don't trust mom with just anyone, do we? First fight I ever got into in middle school is because some kid called my mom ugly. I slammed that kid so hard I almost got expelled. I lived in Corona at the time. It's a different world, okay? And I was from Chicago, Okay. <laughs> We protect mom, don't we? You should. If not, come talk to me. Okay? We, we protect mother. Yeah? I'm teaching my boys this right now. They protect mom and Maisie. And John's the one that Jesus said, watch over her. It's intimate. He's the longest living apostle, unlike his brother, who was the first martyr of the apostles. He was the last to die, and he died of natural causes. 
He died of old age. He was the only apostle to die, the only disciple to die of a natural death. Back up a little bit, he moved to and pastored a church in Ephesus. A, a crazy town. It's like being a pastor in Vegas. Absolute crazy town. Debauchery, port, prostitution. I mean, it's just awful. Absolutely awful. Every city has their issues, but Ephesus was clearly an incredibly depraved place. And he went into the heart of it, and he planted a church in it, and he began to minister in it, and he began to rise in his influence, and the world hates when Christians have influence. And so extra-biblical accounts, very, very reliable extra-biblical accounts, say that they boiled him alive in a vat of oil, and he didn't die. He was just your grumpy old grandpa that just like would not kick it. Just, not today, homies. <laughs> like, nope. So he was very likely disfigured. He was very likely maimed. And then he was exiled. He was kicked out. He was sent to the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island. You can still go there today. It's not that grand or glorious. And at one point, he went up into a cave. It's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. And that's where the Holy Spirit revealed to him the book of Revelation. That's where he was pulled away and he was given the vision of the end times. John was one of Jesus' closest friends, mightily used. There for Jesus' entire ministry, saw and did things that even none of the other disciples apart from two saw. If you could sit down with one person other than Jesus himself who knew him the best, one of the three would be John. He could give the absolute best documentary interview on the life and the works and the ministry and the effect of Jesus. Him. And he was old at this point. Book, these, these three books written somewhere around the time of like 90 AD, 90 years after Jesus' death. He was old. He was toward the end of his life, still being used of God, would slowly ultimately die the only natural death of any of the apostles, away from his family, away from his church, away from his friends, secluded on an island, living in a cave, and yet, even at that age, they used to say that even, even before he got exiled, he was so old, they would, they would have to carry him up to stage. They would carry him to the front of the room so that he could teach. And in those days, the teacher would sit, everyone would stand the entire time, so we're going to start that next week. Just so bring your comfy shoes, okay? And so he's writing these letters as old Grandpa Pastor John. That grandpa that when he sits down, he starts telling stories, you listen. Because he's stepped on landmines. He's seen the landmines, and he can tell you where they are. You don't want to step on those landmines. I did that once with Pastor Rob, twice actually. Went up to his office, and he said, he said exactly that. He said, I'll teach you some landmines in ministry. Don't do this. Do this. Don't say that ever. Say this as often as possible. And he taught me about the landmines, seasoned. And John, far older, far more astute, and had lived with Jesus. So how much more should we sit down at the feet of old Pastor Grandpa John and say, tell us about some of the most reigning truths that if Jesus were still here, he would tell us are so closely interwoven to our faith that we can't neglect them. Give us that perspective this year. Give us that vision this year. Give us that resolve this year. And so we jump into 
Second John. We're really only going to do the first six verses. He, he again goes into, you can see verse 7 through 11, he goes back into warning about false teachers. We're not going to get into that tonight. Again, go back, read, do me a favor, read First John this week. Seriously, it's like, it's five chapters. Yeah, five chapters. There it is. There's your Monday through Friday. Don't act like you don't know how to read the Bible, okay? Listen to old Grandpa Pastor John this week, one chapter a day. I'm telling you, it's a sweet book. I'm telling you, it's a sweet book. There's a reason of, I believe, the two times that I, I, I very succinctly heard God say to teach a book. It was that, and then when I taught through the Gospel of Mark. It was, there was a very clear reason why I believe God commanded me to teach that book first because it set a, f- a, a brand new vision for my entire faith from the get-go. And I've been stumbling, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's tough. I've been falling flat on my face, but it's a sweet book. Read First John. So as I said, we're not necessarily going to deal with the Antichrist deceivers or anything like that. We are going to settle in on these first six. He says the elder. Look, he just says, hey, I'm old. That's what he says. That's what it means. He's not talking about being an elder at the church, right? How many of you had a grandpa that did this? Like, hey, it's basically just like saying, hey, back in my day, okay? You know you have no clue. You had no clue what that means, right? Why? Because you weren't there. And he's teaching to a young church, by the way. He, he was, these letters were sent to a young church who wasn't there for Jesus. So raise your hand if you were there for Jesus' public ministry. Oh, turns out we could probably learn something then, right? Like, we weren't there for it, were we? I wish we were but we weren't. He's teaching to a generally young church. That, that's why some of that Gnosticism started to, to get infiltrated because we're open to new ideas and cool, nuanced ways to think about things. Oh, my parents never told me that. I think it might be true, right? Especially the millennial generation. Unfortunately, I'm with you guys by like, like three months. I'm a millennial, if you don't know that. 18 after the age of, or after the year of 2000. I was 18 in March 2000. And so we love that. Everything is a question. Everything is wrong until proven true, Right? Everything's a lie until proven true. Everyone's wrong or trying to deceive us or trying to lie to us or trying to get us to do something until proven true. We're guilty until proven innocent for millennials. And, and so he, he's writing to this young church, not there for Jesus' ministry. And so he comes with guns blazing. First John, second John, third John. He comes with some big guns blazing. He says, look, I'm old, I'm the elder. Listen, kids, and it's not derogatory. You'll read it in First John. He says, listen, children, it's not derogatory. He says, the elder. Now, this is under some debate. It says, to the elect lady and her children. Now, some believe it's a literal woman and her children. Some people believe it's a symbolic lady of a congregation and their children and those that have basically come to Christ within that congregation. Bible doesn't tell us, so here's the honest answer. It doesn't really matter. I'll tell you that based on him in first, in first John, he didn't describe a congregation. He didn't write it to a church. So I believe that that one was to the capital C church. He wrote that to all Christians. I do tend to be 51% in the camp that thinks this is our, probably toward a congregation. A congregation. Not one woman. And they said the reason that he wouldn't name her is because in those days, being named in a letter like that would indict you in the court of law. And so you could be persecuted and killed for being associated with a guy like John. And so maybe he said the lady, but didn't put her name down because he was writing to an actual lady. That's fine. That's fine. We know that the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is time-sensitive truth and there is time-transcendent truth, yes? So just as it was specifically for that woman or that congregation, 100% true, the same is true that it is for us today. 
There's time-sensitive truth and there's time-transcendent truth. And so regardless of who he was specifically writing to at that moment, the truth is the same. So he says, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. And he says, and not only I, but also all those who have known truth. Whether it's literal or symbolic, we do know this. That this lady or this congregation was loved by those who love the truth. If we know and love the truth, listen, if we know and love the truth, we will love those who know and love the truth. He says, not just me, but a lot of people love this congregation or this woman, I believe congregation. Why? Because they know and love the truth. Do we love the truth? We do and we don't, right? A lot of times we love it when it's blasting other people, but we hate it when it's blasting us, right? Like your sin looks no worse than when it's on someone else. We want justice for them. We want mercy for us. We want truth for them. We want love for us. So where are you in your love affair of truth? Is that an area you're weak in? We're going to get, in, we're going to get into love, but we're, we're on truth now. Is, is, is truth something you pursue? I, I symbolically put truth on the inside of my bicep because I, I recognized years and years ago that the pursuit of truth is one of my strengths. I love that. But see, I sacrificed love in pursuit of truth. And I have consistently, and I continue to at times, though God is doing a crazy work, and my wife will attest to that. I was a jerk in college. Could debate all day long about the tenets of Christianity. And yet Jesus would probably sit there and say, you know nothing about love. They didn't hear a word you just said because you're a jerk. Those who know and love the truth will be known by those who love and know the truth. Do you love truth? Talk about things that you love. Is truth one of them? The Bible calls us to have an affectionate relationship, a pursuit of truth. It says, because of the truth which abides in us. This is a call. This is something that we are called to have inside of us. Do you? in a postmodern society, have a love and desire and a pursuit of truth. And so truth and love are the concepts we'll look at. This first one being truth, because it says this. It says, because of the truth which abides in us, which will be with us forever, grace and mercy and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. In truth and love. They must, church, they must. John screams from a cave in Patmos. You must have those together. In truth and love. Wikipedia, the source of all things good and true. As Michael Scott said, anyone can contribute, so you know it's the best information. Okay, but I'll give it, because where else do you go for like a cultural definition of things? And, and they do a good job. We live in what's known as a postmodern society. A postmodern society. If you haven't heard that, you will at some point. And I'll, I'll just let Wikipedia explain. 
While encompassing a broad range of ideas and projects, postmodernism is typically defined by an attitude of skepticism or distrust toward grand narratives, the grandest of all being the gospel. I put that in there. They didn't. They weren't smart enough to put that in there. Okay. A gen, a, a, an attitude of skepticism or distrust toward grand narratives, ideologies, and various tenets of enlightenment rationality. Including the, existive, including the existence of objective reality and absolute truth. Postmodernism says you cannot have an objective reality, a reality that exists regardless of your perception of it, and it cannot have an absolute truth, something that is true regardless of your feelings about it. And so again, the various tenets, the attitude of skepticism and distrust in the grand narratives, ideologies, and various tenets of enlightenment rationality, including the existence of objective reality and absolute truth. I don't think you can walk through American streets anymore without hearing that truth is relative. It's the, it's the favorite debate in college still, is it not? Right? I, was, I graduated in 03, and I know y'all are still talking about that. First time away from mom and dad, someone's like, truth is relative. Everyone's like, oh, I don't know what to say. Could be wrong. I don't know. As well as notions of rationality, human nature, and progress. Instead, postmodernism asserts that knowledge and truth are the product of unique systems of social, historical, or political discourse and interpretation, and therefore contextual and constructed to varying degrees. Now, this is dangerous if true. I just want to throw this as dangerous if true, because Nazi Germany said it was fine. And if they're allowed to construct truth, then you can't say that was wrong. You can't. And if you do say wrong, you have to have a truth outside of what they believe. You can't. At best, you can say, I think it's wrong, but for them to each their own. Hitler, to to you, your own. I think that's wrong, but you have a different perspective. That's what the logical extension of postmodernism would be if they were consistent in their own thought. And so they believe that truth is a product of unique systems and social, historical, political discourse and interpretation. Now, some of this is true, by the way. Beauty, for instance. There's tribes in far-off lands that believe the ankle is the most beautiful part of a woman's body. I don't get it. I'm just being real. Don't get it. Love my wife. Was it the ankles? Okay, like, not that they're bad. I don't even know why, because I don't even look at them, right? There are things that are socially constructed, to be sure. Christians aren't saying that. We're talking about absolute truth. We're talking about reality. Reality. And says, accordingly, postmodern thought is broadly characterized by tendencies or epistemological or and moral relativism, pluralism, self-referentiality, and irony. Basically this. Truth is relative and or it can't be known. Truth is relative or it can't be known is the thrust of postmodern society. And John says, Jesus is one of his closest friends, says, you must have truth and love. You must have truth. And so we're taught now today in America to look inside ourselves for truth. Professors, secularists, good, well-meaning parents, good, well-meaning friends, relatives. Find your truth, right? Speak 
your truth. Your truth may not be the same as my truth. There's no objective reality. There's no absolute truth. It's up to you, which is dangerous. So we're taught to look into ourselves to find truth rather than up to God to receive it. We're told to look in and find it rather than up and receive it. You begin to hear this. You begin to see with one of the new lenses that I pray we have this year, that the world will consistently, through the arts, through the entertainment, through academia, through teachings, through YouTube, through Facebook, through Instagram, say, look inside, find your truth, and then put that on display. The Bible says, look up and simply receive God's view of reality. That's truth. You'll say, how do you define truth? I would simply say, truth is God's perception of reality outside the context, outside the confines of a finite universe, of a finite mind, of a finite creation, God's perception of reality is truth. Therefore, how can we possibly know if only he like wrote a book on it, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? I, w- I want to hear from God. I'll let, I'll, I'll let you borrow a book. I got one. 66 chapters written by him. So truth, God's perception of reality, Jesus came and had the audacity in John 14, 6 to say, I am the way. It's an invitation to all, yet it's an exclusive path. He is exclusively inclusive. He is inclusively exclusive. He says, all are welcome, but only those that come through me will enter. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have questions about truth, you bring it back to Christ. You bring it back to Christ, you bring it back to God's word, you bring it back to the one who said, I am truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this isn't just in the outside world, it's in religion as well. It's in religion as well. This attack on truth. Had a Jehovah's Witness show up at my new house yesterday so excited i got we got blacklisted at the old place they wouldn't come back so a, a kind gentleman by the name of gene came and we were getting ready to throw my daughter's first birthday so you know what i said yeah i got tons of time let's hang out and so walked out and i have this this desire for truth but but i had to make sure that it was in the context of love and so i, I was diligent to ask his name Little things. What's your first name? Gene. Nice to meet you. I'm Mark. Put my hand on his shoulder. I want to hear what you have to say. I have some questions. And he's like, I haven't even started yet. I'm like, I know, but I got questions too. Do your thing. <laughs> Talk for about a half hour. Talk for about a half hour. People are coming in. No joke. People from this church, they come in like, hey, Mark, going to be a great birthday party. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> John 1.1. 1, 1. He said, let's go there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? His translation says, a God. I said, who translated your Bible? Well, I, I, I know. What are their names? I said, to my understanding, the Watchtower Society hasn't released them. Well, yeah, that's because they didn't, they didn't want any recognition. I said, that's convenient. I said, I'll show you the list of the names that interpreted my Bible. All scholars. All referring first century commentaries mountain of evidence, tens of thousands of copies of people that were studying the original autographs never once contradicted themselves because they were copying pieces of the original Bible, just like I do on my notes. 
they were copying and pasting. Copy, paste, and then they would put their notes. Copy, paste, and then put their notes. Tens of thousands of documents show what the original autographs said. I said, not a single one of them says, hey, God. They all say God. Pursuing truth, but making sure that it was in love. Excited to talk about that. Excited to talk about Colossians 1, 6, he created all things. So there's Jesus and all things. Which one does Jesus fit in? Is he Jesus or is he all things? It's a logical contradiction. So it happens even within religion. It happens with Mormonism, which claims to be Christian, which is why I ask him, why are you trying to convert me? Okay, but, right? Are you Christian? I am. So am I. So what are we talking about? <laughs> right? Oh, but you don't have the full light. Okay. But that pursuit of truth, to push back when it's infringed upon by the world and even within religion when it's pushed back upon. And so he says, in truth and love. Verse 4, he says this, I rejoice greatly. Love this. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we have received commandment from the Father. This is a pastor's heart pouring out. I probably haven't done a good enough job of this. We, we Pastors love when people are walking in God's truth. We do. We just don't say it that often. I, maybe I, I, don't, I fail. I fail, like in all my meetings with people, I fail to just, like I'm so pumped that God called you this and you're doing it. We always tend to looking toward like the next thing, not recognizing where we're getting some things right. John's heart, Pastor Old Grandpa, Pastor John, is pouring out. And I love that he said some, right? He's right into a church. He's like, some of you, so practical. So I love that 100% of you are all walking. He's like, eh, people. I would love to look out right now and say 100% of you are walking in God's truth. I'd love to look at myself and be like, 100% of the time I'm walking in God's truth. He knows it's not always true. But he loves when they are. And it's not that you've taken a step in truth, Right? It's that you're walking consistent, diligently. One of the first things they tell us, like I remember one of the first things I heard from my drill instructors when I was in the Marine Corps, is they said, from the rest of your life, you will walk differently. They said, Marines walk with purpose everywhere they go. So you will walk differently for the rest of your life after we're through with you. Consistently, diligently, with purpose, with poise, with confidence, though we're going to fall on our face, we get right back up and we keep going. He says, I love that some of you are walking in God's truth. Walking. And notice he doesn't say, I love that some of you know truth. Because some of you here tonight, you're like, truth, epic. I'm in, I'm I'm there, I'm getting that tat tomorrow. Yes. And you know truth, but don't become a Gnostic. Don't become a Gnostic. Knowing truth won't save you. It's a part of being saved, but knowing truth won't save you. It's not a special knowledge that reconnects you. Rilangari, the word for religion. It's not special knowledge that relinks you to creator God. It's a person. It's a sacrifice. It's a resurrection that relinks you. Jesus said, I am the way. No one gets in except through me. And so he says, I, I rejoice 
greatly. See, to know truth is good, but to walk in truth is great. To know truth is good. To walk in it is great, Christian. To walk in that truth is great. And he's rejoicing. And it's not just taking a step and it's not just knowing truth that people are walking, that they're constant, that they're moving forward. Some of you are stalled right now. Some of you felt, I I know this because I've done it. Some of you feel like in your faith, you got absolutely nowhere in 2016. Saved, to be sure, not questioning it. But moving forward, not so much. How many of you feel like that? Don't raise your hands. How many of you feel like that? Like 2016, like you, you know you're saved. You got, you got gripped by Jesus. Recently, long time ago, you know you're saved. You're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You just got it in park. You're standing in truth. You're not walking in it. You stand here and yell at everyone walking by you, and the Christian's stumbling like, idiot, you trip. Man, at least they're moving forward. We're just standing there. I've done it. I've wasted entire years of my faith. It's not that they're wasted. God gives to everyone a different measure of faith. It's just that he has a calling to walk forward, to walk with purpose. We're a chosen few, not unlike the Marine Corps, tiny little branch that does crazy things. Crazy. You know, Patrick, that's the former Marine. (laughs) We break stuff better than anyone. We break countries better than anyone small little force, but we're on purpose and we walk differently than anyone. And Christians aren't arrogant and boastful and jerks or anything like that, but we're walking forward. We're walking in truth. We're confident in truth as we receive the commandment from the Father. And he says, and I plead with you now, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment. This is actually what I loved about it for the new year. Because everyone's like, give me something new for the year. No. I'll give you what we should have been doing last year, myself included, right? It's not new. How many of you like came to church for the you're like, we're supposed to love people? What, what Bible is this? I didn't realize that was in there. Anyone, anyone shocked by that? We have to love, I'm out. Where's the Jehovah's, right? And they say, those guys are great, by the way. I told them that they love people like crazy. And I told them that the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses are the nicest people I've ever met. I've gone to their services, amazing. And they're better at debating than us. And they're better at evangelism than us. They're better at discipling, they're better, all that. I, I love Don and I said, you encourage me. I said, you make me a better pastor. I said, a lot of times I, 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 I teach things because I want folks to be as diligent about a true orthodox Christianity as you are about yours. Build them up in that sense. But we have to love. It shouldn't be shocking. It's nothing new. We have to. And when you're saved, you'll want to. And so he says, not as though I wrote a new commandment, verse 5, to you, but that which we have had from the beginning. So you know this. If you didn't know this, I take 100% responsibility as, as, as I pray to be your pastor, I take, if, if you haven't heard this from the Christian church in your entire life, I will take that responsibility, but you don't get the excuse anymore. You're absolved from not knowing, but today it's now on you that we're called, as it says, to love one another. 
Now, love has many meanings in culture. We live in what's known as a post-sexual revolution in the 60s. So when your parents are like, we had a, you know, our generation was awesome. Yours is terrible. Just remind them about the 60s, okay? It's like, thanks for that, STDs and everything, okay? It's terrible, terrible what it did to our culture. The baby boomer generation went ballistic, and we're still reaping the fallout. So love tends to be, though we say things like, I love pizzas, it tends to be in a sexual expression. That's where we tend to categorize love. And so when you have the conversations in college and you have the conversations with, with the marriage landscape changing, with the transsexual landscape changing, it tends to be, let me do what I want in sexual expression. It tends to be. Not always. We're told that the height of love is tolerance. We're told that the height of love, the peak, the greatest, the grandest form of love is tolerance, meaning we accept virtually everything, if not everything. Love is accepting everyone, but not everything. Where do you get that definition? Man by the name of Jesus. Accepted Everyone very clearly did not accept everything. You would have to rip out massive sections of the Bible where he straight fought with people. Said, that's wrong. And if he is love, if he is truth, love confronts lies. I have a great quote here from Christian author Josh McDowell. You guys heard Josh McDowell? Pretty prolific. He's written like 115 probably working on eight right now books. He's crazy. Josh McDowell. I think his website's like josh.org. How do you get that? Okay. He says this in his book entitled The New Tolerance, How a Cultural Movement Threatens to Destroy You, Your Faith, and Your Children. He says this. Now, I love this because what he does is he actually raises the bar. And Jesus was a fan of this. He said, hey, tell us about divorce. He's like, I'll teach you about marriage. He always raised his answer above. He, he went higher. He, wasn't, he didn't allow himself to be drugged down. That's why I love this response. It says, tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. It's not up to you. Truth is relative. Your truth is yours. Mine is mine. So tolerance says, let me have my way. McDowell says, love responds. I must do something harder. I will plead with you to follow the right way. Listen, I will plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you are worth the risk. See how he's gone up? He, takes, he, he thinks of others better than himself, which we're called to do. Love says, I, I can't simply let you have what you want if only we had someone who epitomized that mentality that says what you want isn't good enough, therefore I'll take the harder route. That said love does harder things. Why? Because I believe you're worth it. 
And so the classic conversation about homosexuality, the classic new conversation about, about transsexual and, 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 and the different various expressions that we're told, quote, love wins, hashtag love wins. No, love cares. And it cares enough to take a risk to quite possibly break through to someone that what they want ultimately hurts them. Truth in love. And I would say this. People say, how do you define love? I got this from my dad. Because I came back from CLU. I went back from college one summer after getting pummeled in class. Pummeled in the relative debate. It always came down to love, and I had no good defense for stopping love. I could do historical arguments. I could do sociological arguments. I could do psychological arguments. I could do all that sort of stuff. But I didn't really have a definition of love. So I brought it to my father, a pastor of 40 years, retired currently, 40 years in the pulpit, man who loves and serves Jesus his entire life and has the gray hair to prove it, who I just got to spend a week with in Mammoth I, or in Big Bear. I, I live thousands of miles from my parents. I see my dad maybe once a year. And I got to spend time sitting on a chairlift with him. And I've told him this a couple times, that this was one of the most profound things he's ever told me. Sitting in the car back in Minnesota, driving somewhere, I said, Dad, I'm just getting pummeled on these arguments. I'm getting pummeled when it comes to love. And he says, you always have to define love. I said, then what's your definition? What do you do? My dad said this without flinching. I said, then what's love? He gave me a definition you'll find nowhere, but I know of not a single one higher. Not a single definition that, and I'm, I'm open to this. You think you have one? Come up afterwards and tell me. If you find a grander definition than this, my dad said, love is this, desiring for someone else what God desires for them. That's love. There's nothing bigger. What's love? It has nothing to do with me. It has wanting for you what God wants for you. That's it. That's my role. It's still between you and him. I want what he wants for you. That's how you begin to bridge that conversation of love. Then what is love? Simply getting what you want? That's a, that's a lesser definition, regardless of your ideological background. So love, I would argue, is designed for others what God wants for them. And often that, that, that includes opening your mouth. In truth, in love, in college, at work, I, I, I kid you not, a week ago, I was at the office. I, I work in a secular job, director of marketing. The COO's daughter and I were talking about some of the, the transsexual stuff, and I actually referenced a, a sermon by a guy by the name of Andrew Wilson. He's, he's a pastor in the UK. I said, he did an amazing sermon, amazing sermon. I mean, he goes into the eunuchs. He goes into transsexual, homosexual, all. I mean, he, he and, I, and I told her, I said, I'm just, I'm just going to send you a link if you've got 30 minutes, 35 minutes, listen to it. I said, it is the greatest response to that issue that I can currently find. And it's all about how to respond in love. And she goes, yeah, but isn't love a part of your faith? And doesn't love mean that you accept everyone? And I said, I accept everyone, but not everything. I accept everyone, but not everything. And I told her, I said, I don't get that because of me. I said, Jesus accepted everyone and accepts everyone, but not everything. And so here, Pastor John is, is greatly rejoiced that people are walking in truth. And he calls us not to a new commandment, but to an old one that we've had from the beginning, which is that we love 
one another. And he says, this is love. The Bible points in many different directions. The Bible points to many different instances. It gives you many facets and components of love. And this is one. This is one. This is love. He says, this is love. Some of you are like, what is love? This is love. For the Christian, this is love. He says that we walk according to his commandments. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. And some of you say, hold on, that sounds like legalism. Jesus would say to you in John 14, if you love me, it's not I will love you if. It's not if you this, then love will. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. From the words of Jesus to our ears today, if you love me, keep my commandments. Say by grace, bro. I know. I know. And if you're saved, you will have a desire. I can bank on the Holy Spirit doing his job. I can bank on us to fight it, but I can bank on the Holy Spirit regenerating our heart, and as it says in Ezekiel 36, causing us to walk in his statutes. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Thank goodness he didn't say, if you follow my commandments, then you'll love me. That's a capricious God that I don't want to follow, but he says, if you do love me, Follow my commandments. And so I just want to end, as he says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. That's it. 2017, from here on out, the rest of the year, until Jesus comes back, we walk in these things. Truth, love. We don't get to sacrifice truth at the altar of love, nor do we get to sacrifice love at the altar of truth. It's not part of the Christian. We have to grip with these being together. Now what I want to do is just spend a few minutes and I want the Bible, I want God's truth to simply wash over us on these two concepts. Truth is not a burden to bear. It is the reality that sets us free. Jesus says in John 8, 32, so if some of you feel burdened by this concept of truth, Jesus says, and you shall know the truth and the, sh- the truth shall make you free. So if, if following God's commandments are a burden to you, it feels burdensome rather than freeing, it's because you're dabbling in legalism. It's because you think following them will save you. That's where the burden comes from. It's not from the simple act of following commandments. David wrote in one of the Psalms that he's laid awake at night dreaming of the law. Anyone done that recently? No. And he only had the Old Testament. Like, what was he dreaming about? Like, Leviticus. It's an amazing book. No, it's bloody awful, it seems. Does it not? And he just laid awake meditating on God's law. Why? Because it freed him. It wasn't a burden. So you and I can be following the same commandment at the exact same time in history next to each other. If you feel burdened and I feel free, it's because you think it'll save you or vice versa, that I think it'll save me and you've been freed by it. Truth is not a burden to bear. It's a reality that sets us free and it's God's reality. Truth is not something that you have to find on your own. Thank goodness. Some of you are like, well, this is great, but now I have to go home and figure out truth. Luckily, God doesn't count on us to do that. I love that God, 
right? Who's lazy here? Raise your hand, every single 100%. See, and the rest of you are lying. So you all have your own issues. So check this out. It says, truth is not something you have to find on our own. This is my note. It says, it's something we can receive. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So you're like, okay, how do I know truth? Accept the Holy Spirit, focus on the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit, he'll show you. Like Pastor Mark, what's truth? Talk to the Holy Spirit. That's my response. How do I know? Talk to him. Why? Because I'm lazy. I got to do it for you. Okay? Let him guide you. Do you love a God that says, I'll take it from here? I love that God. What do I do? Ask. Psalm 145, 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And know that standing for truth is a battle. Ephesians 6, 14 likens it to war equipment. War equipment. I, I might be the only one in the room that's been to war. I can tell you our life depends on equipment. That's it. It's not like how fast can Mark run. It doesn't matter when they're shooting. I trained. I could do pull-ups. It doesn't matter when they drop a bomb on your head. What saves us is equipment. What girds us up is equipment. What, what we lurch forward into dark places with is equipment. And some talent to be sure, but equipment. Ephesians 6, 14 says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Standing for truth is a battle. You just need to know that. You need to know that there is militant language throughout the New Testament. Not because we're called to be a militant church, but because we're fighting a spiritual battle. We don't wage against war and flesh but of powers and principalities. It's a spiritual war. So he says, stand in truth, gird your waist in truth. And it is a calling on our life. John four twenty four says, Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must, listen, must. This isn't optional. Some of you blow right by the word must and think it depends on how you feel that day. Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Truth must be in the Christian life. It must be something that you worship God with your pursuit of. Does that make sense? And we're called to love. John 13, 34 through 35 says, a new commandment I give to you, this is Jesus, that you love one another. That's why John says we've had this from the beginning. Right? Right? because it was a new commandment when Jesus showed up. And when he said these words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. People are like, what does love look like? Have you studied the gospels? Take a look at how, I do this with with premarital counseling. I say, husbands, you want to know how to interact with your wife? Study the life of Jesus and how he interacted with the church. That's it. See how he washed her feet. See how he went after her. See how he died for her. You want to see what love looks like? You need to get intimately familiar with the life and the work and the person of Jesus. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It's not because of what we say. It's not because of the cheesy NOTW shirts that we have or the bumper stickers that we put on our SUVs or the ichthus fish because we act like martyrs. Those are etched in, in the, the tombs and the catacombs in Rome, by the way. It says, you will, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
That's how they'll know. We're called to love like Jesus loves. If you've been to a wedding any time after 100 AD, you've probably heard this. It says, love is patient. Are you patient? I had to, I, had to, I struggled with this with J-Dub. Had a lot of questions. Gene, hurry up. It's boiling up. I got a question. Patience. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Are you kind with people? Who's who's that gal that you're not kind with? Who's that dude that you're not kind with? Because you're like, I get it. I'll love all people, but her? No. Him? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Who's that person for you? I don't have to know this. Holy Spirit will bring that up in you. Who are you struggling with right now? You patient? You kind? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. That's me. It's me. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. How many, of us, how many of us get stoked when our enemies screw up? Right? In the workplace, riffing with some, you know, other director, some manager, and they, they mess up. So, it's so easy to be like, <laughs> my project's better, right? People at your school, when they screw up, when they mess up, they don't do well. Family, friends. does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love is not an option. It's evidence. First John 4, 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Could have described himself anyway. And he said, describe me as love. We don't love out of fear. It says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with the punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. First John four eighteen through 19. And when a scribe asked Jesus what the greatest of all commandments were, always trying to trap Jesus in an intellectual debate, and he would always elevate his answer above the question. So what's the greatest commandment, Rabbi? Jesus, tell us. What's the biggest one? Because he wants him to contradict something in the Old Testament, and then they slam him. Jesus answers, the most important is hero Israel. Hear church, 2017, Thousand Oaks. Hear this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have, you shall love the Lord your God. Look, this is this relationship. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Look, you shall love your neighbor. You should love God. You should love your neighbor. You love up. You love across. You should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus, who came in truth, said, you must, we must. If you're in me, you will love. And the truth about love is this. It's a simple message. It's a simple conclusion as we go into a time of worship. And communion. The truth about love is this that Jesus, the creator of the universe, loves you so much that he came to earth to show you truth and die so that you could be with him forever. And the grave was made for sinners, and Jesus never sinned, and so he went into the grave and it could not hold him, and he rose and he defeated death. And his body was put into the ground as your sin, and he came up in a glorified body, which means when you're in him, your sin has been put to death. It's been cast as far as the east is from the west. 
to be remembered no more. The truth about love is that Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth about who he is and how you can spend eternity with him. It's but a gift we ask and we should receive. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you didn't come just in truth, that you didn't come just in love as the world would have it, but that you came to show your love in truth. You came to embody truth and embody love and that we have a perfect example of what those two concepts look like. I pray that this year would be new. It would feel fresh. That we would have this perspective, though, that goes beyond the year. That it transcends deep into the crevices of our heart. It stirs up the areas where we've fallen short, myself included, but it cleans them, it purifies them. It sets us on mission and it puts us out on a path to walk forward in truth and in love so that the world may see a glimpse of you now as you work in and through us, walking in truth, and as we love one another. Jesus, Holy Spirit, I, I, I pray I've been diligent in my calling to profess the truth. And now I trust and I rely that for those who accept you, that you will do your work, which is you will embed this in the hearts of your people. They will wake up. They will leave the building now changed. Not because of what I said, but because of what you've done in the hearts of your children. May we pursue you in truth and in love. May we pursue the fallen, broken things of this world in truth and in love because you pursued us as broken in truth and love. Jesus, thank you. We love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.